Well, good morning, everyone. Let me just take a quick second to, to thank you, church family, for, um, for just the, the, the love you've showed me and my family. Um, I'm the new pastor here on staff, and it's just been a joy to serve you and to, and to be served by you. It's just, I've felt your love. I have heard about your love. You have poured your love on me and my family, and, and I just want to take the opportunity to pour it back and say thank you for how gracious you've been, how uh, patient you've been, how kind you've been. I've felt your prayers. I've needed your prayers, and it's just been a joy to get to know you, so thank you. If you're here for the first time, or maybe you've uh, missed a couple of our uh, summer sermons, we're in a series called Summer Bible Jam. And our goal, uh, our goal this season is to encounter God by reading His Word and and meditating on His Word, trying to get in in there deeper, uh, trying to allow that Word to read us, uh, some of the language we've been using. Last year, we focused on um, the broader story of the Bible. What, what is God trying to speak through the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation? And, and, and we understand, of course, that even though that there's 66 books of the Bible, these books tell one comprehensive story. There's one thread. There's a theme in the Bible that is presented to us in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So if you've ever visited a city, if you've ever gone and um, maybe taken a helicopter tour or something, or maybe flown over a city, that's kind of what we did last year. We kind of looked far into kind of the general broad landscape of of the Bible. And this year, what we wanted to do is actually land that plane and, and go into some of the buildings and, and, and look into some of the restaurants that are there, get to see some of the actual sites, touch them maybe, um, experience them in a much more intimate way. Because these 66 books are, they're all not written in the same way. You know, just like you would um, read a, a, a Facebook post uh, differently than a newspaper article. Or, or, or maybe the way you would read kind of a homeowner's insurance policy uh, different than, than a song or, or, or a poem. Uh, the, the Bible works the same way. There's these different genres, these different books that are meant to be approached and interpreted and read and even studied uh, differently. So this week, we're looking at a section of scripture that, that's called the historical narratives. It's a big fancy word for the stories in the Bible, the Old Testament stories of the Bible. And this is a, a pretty big part of scripture. Uh, about 60% of the entire Bible is presented to us in, in, in this fashion in stories, uh, stories that you probably grew up hearing that as a kid, you taught, you, you taught your kids, you're teaching them now maybe. And we're going to focus on the book of 1 Samuel. So turn to your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and I'm going to ask you to keep that Bible open. Um, we're going to be walking through the book chapter by chapter, so, so I purposefully made the notes small, and there's not a whole lot of them, because I want, I want you to be looking at the Word. I want your eyes to be focused on what is happening as we transition through the book of 1 Samuel. As you're bowing, looking at your Bible now, just go ahead and close your eyes and join me in prayer. Father, you promised us a time when your spirit would impress your truth into our hearts. You promised us a time when your spirit would write your truth, write your word 
on our hearts. So, Father, I pray that you would do what I cannot, what none of us can, that your spirit would come and write his truth, your truth, on our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, 1 Samuel. You open there. Maybe if you went to the index, you, you, you notice that there's a book right after 1 Samuel called 2 Samuel. Well, in, in the original um, Hebrew Bible, that was actually one book. Um, and the reason we have two is, is those books were written in these scrolls. And, and quite literally, they kind of run out of space, ran out of space on the first scroll. And so they just took another one and started writing. And over time, we just came to know them as First and Second Samuel. So this is kind of where we are in the story of redemption. This is really important. After the events of the book of Exodus, you know, Moses rescuing the people of Israel from Pharaoh's rule and their enslavitude to them in Egypt, God makes a covenant with the Israelites on Mount Sinai. Now, remember this, God gives them the Ten Commandments and, and installs just several ideas of, of, of uh, how to worship him. Uh, the priesthood is installed, the different ceremonies and, and, and the laws. And, and um, the, the primary purpose of, of these things, the sacrificial system and, and all that content that we have from the book of Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, is that these things are meant to not only distinguish the people of God from the rest of the world, he's calling a people to himself and he's expecting them to be holy, to be set apart. But, but the, these rules, these ordinances, these laws are, are meant to teach us something about who God is, about his character, about his expectations um, of us with him. And much of the point of the first five books of the Bible, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, much of the point, that there's a big arrow, and the arrow is pointing to the promised land, right? Moses wants to take the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land, to Canaan, to this land that flows with milk and honey. Well, the book of Deuteronomy finishes, Moses dies, and a new leader is called by God, this young man by the name of Joshua. And by the time that we get to the book of Joshua, the people of Israel made it into the promised land. Barely, but they made it into the promised land. And um, after Joshua, we come into a book called the book of Judges. And um, you're familiar probably with a story um, uh, in the book that's very popular, very well known in in culture, the story of Samson and Delilah. Uh, This is where that story is found in the Bible. And there's something really unique that is is happening uh, in the life of Israel. Um, They're they're behaving a certain way. And and I want to read to you a quick verse In the book of Judges, a constant theme that's repeated in the book of Judges, the scripture says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel descends into moral chaos it's just horrible what the people of God are doing. And, and, and they're in this desperate need of godly leadership. And this is exactly where the book of 1 Samuel picks up. The book of 1 Samuel is a very important book in the story of God's redemption because it functions as a, as a hinge. This is a historical hinge. It's a turning point where we move from a period of, of the judges to 
the era of, of the kings. This is where we have the first king of the Bible. We have the greatest king of the Bible, arguably. And uh, we see some pretty interesting characters as well. So we're going to focus on the first half of the book, chapter by chapter. And what I'd like to do is, is, is model for you. Again, the whole purpose of Summer Bible Jam this year is, is how do we allow the Bible? How do we read the Bible so that the Bible would in turn read us? And this material you're probably really familiar with. If, if you do um, the chronological Bible reading plans in January and you're faithful all the way to, to February maybe, um, this is the type of content that you're being exposed to, historical narrative. So, so what I'd like to do is, is model that with you. How, you're, how we're meant to read these historical stories. So let's start in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. We're, we're introduced to a, a couple of minor characters, a, a priest by the name of Eli and a humble woman by the name of Hannah. Eli was the high priest at the time, uh, and uh, he was not doing a very good job. Hannah, on the other hand, was, was a humble woman who is unable to conceive. And let me pause right there and insert this thought. One of the fascinating things about the book of 1 Samuel is, is the Holy Spirit does this constantly. He'll contrast somebody in a high position against somebody in a low position. And the teaching point there is we're meant to see how this person, the person in the low position, the humble person, is the one whom ultimately God will exalt and ultimately whom we're supposed to emulate. These are our examples. So you have this priest, this high priest, who's not doing a very good job. And, and Hannah, this woman who, who, who is unable to conceive, uh, un, 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 unable to bear a child, but she prays to God and, and she, she asks him, God, if you will bless me with a son, I will in turn give him back to you. But he would serve you for all his life. Well, God hears Hannah, and she conceives a baby boy by the name of Samuel. This is whom we get the name for the book of Samuel. The name Samuel literally means God hears. So, by the way, um, sometime this afternoon maybe, go read chapter 2 of the book. This is one of the few recorded songs in the Bible outside of the book of Psalms. And it's a beautiful song. And it gives us the, the, the lens, the themes of the entire, the entire book of 1 Samuel is developed by some of the content that we find in the song of Hannah. It's a really beautiful thing. But in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, we're, we're introduced to one of the three main characters of the book. A guy by the name of Samuel. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The Bible says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet come out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, 
I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, my son. Lie down again. Don't you wish you had kids like this? <laughs> Young parents or old parents or anyone? Now, Samuel did, not, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Did you notice what verse 1 said about Samuel? He was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, for there was no frequent vision. He was ministering in a place, ministering to a God whom he had not yet known. He hadn't known God. He hadn't heard or seen God. Where is this faith coming from? What has been installed in him before this moment to get this young boy to serve, to minister in the place of the Lord? And I think a lot of that had to do with his mom. His mom prayed for him. Earlier on in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're told that she visited him frequently. Probably spoke to him about God. Probably told him about how God had served him. How God had, had met her need. How God had spoken and revealed himself to her. And, and given her the request she, she, she brought to him. So mom and dad's in the room. Never underestimate the power of your prayers for your children. God had not yet revealed himself to Samuel. But when he finally does... Notice how Samuel responds. What does Samuel say? Speak, for your servant hears. How many of us pray this way? How many of us engage with God in this way? If I, if I were to ask you right now, what is your posture before God like? What would you say? What do you say to him? Are you, are you leaning into God when you pray? Do, do, you, do you stand at attention 
before God when you pray? Actively listening? Or, or, or do, do you stand in, 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 a, in, in a jaded attention kind of way? You ever had a conversation with somebody that you just don't really want to have? You know, maybe the conversation's terrible, maybe the person's terrible, and they just kind of made a beeline to you, and they just bleh, started talking. And, and maybe I'm just a terrible person, but I, I sometimes I'll do this, and I'll just nod. You ever do that? You just smile and nod? You know? And you're hoping that if you just agree with everything, if you keep this up, the, the conversation will, will be real short, right? You've got that meeting you've got to get to. You forgot to set the DVR and, you know, this is us is coming up and, and, you know, just didn't get a chance to record it. So you can't miss it. The season premiere. That's important. There's, you know, this errand you had to run. There's just something much more important in your life at that moment than that conversation with that person. So you just stand there. Jaded attention. Does that describe your relationship to God? Does, Does that describe your prayer life? Do you smile and nod at God? While he's speaking to you? What's fascinating about this chapter is is we learn that much of Samuel's life is is characterized by an eagerness to respond to God. He's a man that's known for, for responding to God eagerly, for desiring to hear from the Lord and jumping at the opportunity to hear. At the end of chapter 3, verse 19, we read this. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, in just a few short years, within one chapter of the Bible, we go from a season of of judges where there's no king and the word of the Lord is, is not frequent for there's no visions on him, of him to a time where the Lord reveals himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Scripture says that he's established as a prophet. What, is it, what does that sound like? Is, is that, does that sound like someone who's casually engaging with God? He's established. He's, he's rooted. He's firm. There's, there, there's, there's consistency in, a, in, in activities related to God and related to pursuing and hearing and listening from God. Samuel's example for us is one of a man who's devoted to God and established by the word of God. So as we move into chapter 4, notice how the Holy Spirit will contrast this. 
when we're presented these stories, it's no coincidence in the sequence of the things. God's trying to communicate something in the order of these events, the way they're recorded. So we, we, have, a, we, we have this contrast between Samuel, what should be, versus the people of Israel, what should have been. Chapter 4 of Samuel is a fascinating story of, of a battle that takes place between the Israelites and the Philistines. We, we encounter the Philistines early in, in the book of Judges. They're this kind of new military force that comes up. They, they're coastal people, and they just become a permanent uh, thorn in the side of the people of Israel for many years to come. And in chapter 4, they, 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 they go at it. Israel and, Phil, and, and the Philistines go at it. They go into this battle, and what do you know? the Philistines lay the smack down on the Israelites. And the Israelites retreat, and naturally, they say, hey, we, 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 have, to, we have to get them back, right? We've got to devise this plan now to kind of go, go after them and, and beat them in battle, right? Sounds reasonable enough. Well, the Israelites do battle with them again. Look at chapter 4, verse 3, and listen to what happens. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. This is their plan. Hey, let's go get the ark of the covenant, bring it with us, and we'll win. Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. That escalated quickly. What happened? Wasn't the ark of God the container of the presence of God? Wasn't the ark of God meant to protect them? So what happened? What did they lose? What did they do wrong? This is part of God's judgment towards Israel. Later on in the story in chapter 7, Samuel rebukes Israel. And he tells them this, put away the foreign gods among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So Israel had a pantheon of gods, including Yahweh. Israel had a series of religious artifacts, including the Ark of the Covenant. Israel had given themselves up to the devotion and worship of other gods, and that also included Yahweh. So their use of the ark of God is not a demonstration of trust. They're not being faithful to God. They're trying to use the ark of God as a weapon, as a trophy, They're not relying on God. They're they're being superstitious. 
They've reduced God's presence among them to the equivalent of a spiritual good luck charm. God is no trophy. God is no rabbit's foot. God is not some mystical four-leaf clover meant to give us success in life. God is not some mantra to be repeated until we convince ourselves that victory over what avails us is ours through the power of our own self-determination. God is not to be used. God is the ruler, the sovereign, majestic king on high. And we will, in fact, experience victories in this life. That will happen. Victories will be a part of the Christian life, but the victories we experience in this life come about when God works through us, in us, not when we try and work in Him. Our victories happen when God uses us, not when we attempt to use him. So the contrast there, Samuel in chapter 3 and Israel in chapter 4, is that Samuel was used by God and Israel is trying to use God. You move on to chapter 5 and chapter 5 is a really powerful and funny lesson about God and his power. That, that's your homework for tomorrow. That, that's the passage I'd like for you to read tomorrow. And uh, it's just a really interesting story. Moving into chapter 6, God by himself, without the need of any army, without the need of any power of man, by himself, returns himself to the people of God. And then we come to chapter 7, a depressing chapter. Momentary glory, what could have been. Samuel faithfully leads the nation of Israel to repent from their sins of idolatry. And and at the same time, God blesses them. God blesses Israel by finally giving them victory over the Philistines. So things look awesome. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Let me pause right there. Some of you are like me, and we love hymns, and there's a hymn called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a verse that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, by, uh, hither by thy, hence, by thy help I've come. That, that hymn, if you've ever sung that hymn, if you've ever wondered what Ebenezer was, this is where we get that reference from. Back to the text. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. Fantastic. They did it. Glory. They've won. They live happily ever after. Until the next chapter. (laughs) Chapter 8, Samuel experiences one of the most difficult moments of his life as a prophet. Israel asks for a king. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Scripture says that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, You're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Let me pause right there. 
Notice what Samuel's about to do. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Again, always eager. Always eager to go before God. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel warns the people of the dangers of what they're asking for. The people refuse to obey the Lord and Samuel. But God tells Samuel, listen to them, give them a king. Why would God do that? Why would God capitulate that way? Why would God compromise his holy standards to appease an impetulant people? Have you ever considered that sometimes God will grant our requests as a way of disciplining us? Even more sobering, did you ever consider that God will, in fact, sometimes answer your prayers to punish you? Now, I realize what I just did. I realize what some of you are thinking. If you're someone who, who struggles to find time to pray, I've visited with a number of you for the vital signs spiritual health. We had an emphasis. We're still with that emphasis, by the way. And, and, and I've asked many of you, describe your prayer life. How are you praying? Are you engaging with God? And, and now you just heard me say that if you pray, God might give you what you want as a way to punish you. Thanks a lot, preacher. Let me remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verse 26. He says, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. The kindness of God towards those who profess faith in Christ is so profound that he will, in fact, protect us from ourselves. So please pray. Lift your requests before God. He is faithful to listen and gracious to provide. This is what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then, you who are evil, ouch, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So what is going on? Remember that contrast we talked about earlier? This was something that the Holy Spirit showed me this week. I had never seen this before till He opened my eyes to this. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. Scripture records, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel, this is before chapter 8, this is before what we were talking about. 
The chapter immediately before, they ask for a king, and God gives them a king to discipline them. This is what we have. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do they sound a little bit different in chapter 7? So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So what's the contrast? Chapter 8 and chapter 7. Same people. In chapter 7, Israel seeks the Lord in a posture of humble faith. But in chapter 8, Israel demands something from God in a posture of entitled arrogance. And God, in a divine display of sovereign wisdom to serve his purposes, and to serve us as example, grants both requests. Did you see that? So let me ask you this. How are you postured in your prayers? What do you sound like before God? We want to read the Bible, but more than that, we want the Bible to read us. So what's it telling you right now? Do you sound like Samuel? Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Do you you sound like the people of Israel chapter 7? Samuel, do not cease to, to intercede for us before God. Or do you sound like the people of Israel in chapter 8? Give us a king now. Well, the people ask for a king. Samuel listens, and in chapters 9 and 10, we are introduced to the second most important character of this book, a man by the name of Saul. Listen to how Saul is described. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Listen to how the people receive him. Once he's anointed as king and once he's presented before the people, listen to how the people receive him. Turn to uh, one chapter over, uh, chapter 10, verse 23. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. They, They literally looked up to the guy. I mean, he was tall. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. This guy looks pretty awesome, doesn't he? 
And he kind of was. In, in chapter 7, he, he leads the people of Israel to another great victory against another one of Israel's enemies. Israel didn't have a whole lot of friends back then. They were bad neighbors. I don't, they didn't mow the lawn or I, I don't know what, but they, they just had all these enemies around them. But in chapter 11, he defeats the Ammonites. And at the end of chapter 11, the Bible literally says that the kingdom was restored because of Saul. But things again take a turn for the worse. For the next 20 chapters, about 40 years, the next 20 chapters, Saul's life descends into moral chaos and madness. I think I have this in your outline. Pastor Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. had really useful analysis as to what's going on here. He writes, as I have read and reflected on these chapters, it has become clear that Saul is not just impressive to others. That in and of itself is not a problem. He is impressive to himself, and that's a problem. Why? He has a tendency to shape God's word to be what he wants them to be. He hears God's commands through Samuel. He will, in some sense, listen, take in, and acknowledge God's words. But then, he will reshape the commands until they become more sensible to him. Unlike Samuel, who is just plain obedient. How's the Bible reading you so far? Do you find the Bible, do you find 1 Samuel telling you, you look a lot like Samuel, you're just plain obedient, or... Is the Bible telling you, you know, from a distance, you and Saul, I can't tell the difference. Well, Saul does this reshaping of God's commands repeatedly. In chapter 13, he he blatantly disobeys Samuel's commands to wait for Samuel's arrival before offering a sacrifice. In chapter 15, Saul again disobeys God's clear instructions, and the guy has the hubris. This is the type of guy Saul was. He disobeys God's clear instructions. And in the process of doing that, the guy builds a monument for himself. You could tell he wasn't from New Orleans. But when he is called out by Samuel, when Samuel calls him out and says, Dude, this is how he responds. He says, Samuel, I have sinned. What's bad about that? Well, nothing, but then he added this. Yet, honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. This guy is full of himself. He's blinded to his many shortcomings and failures by the brightness of his ego. And what's worse is that Samuel seems to be the only person that saw this. I mean, after all, this is the king the people wanted, was it not? This is the guy who impressed everyone. This is the guy whom everyone examined and said, hey, we want that guy. Long live that king. He's tall. He's handsome. He's powerful. um, These past three, four presidential elections have been 
really interesting. If you weren't paying attention, you probably are now. I'm in my early 30s. I, I've really only been following presidential cycles since I was 19. I wasn't born here. Um, and um, at about 18 or 19, I started caring. I just started, just, I don't know, it seemed interesting. But I noticed something in the past two or three presidential cycles. Maybe this has been the case for, I I don't know, but I I noticed that it's certainly something that piqued my interest in in, in reading analysis and all that kind of political stuff. I I heard some of this thought um, come come across from um, from other people. There There was one thing that was really peculiar. There was an important category that presidential candidates had to get just right. That there was a key characteristic, that this crucial quality, that that those that were running for elected office had to shine in, and, and how well they did in this category would determine if the person would succeed or fail. You know what I'm talking about? It revolved around a question. And the question was, does he look presidential? Does she look presidential? Did y'all notice that? And it was fascinating. Whatever that means, look presidential, this is what it did. If, if, If a candidate brought with him or her you know, uh, uh, previous accomplishments or, or there were certain strengths that characterized this person or, or that they had a, a long positive record or, or, or just, just had certain good traits to them. Somehow, the, the looking presidential magnified these things. They were amplified. If, if the, the, the presidential candidate was, was really good at doing yard work, Somehow, by looking presidential, um, uh, deforestation would decrease in the world. Things were just enhanced. They were bolstered. They grew exponentially. And, and the opposite was also true. If, if a candidate looked presidential, but they had weaknesses to them, maybe moral shortcomings. Maybe everyone kind of knew that they really didn't know what they were doing. Looking presidential kind of made us wink at that. It's okay. He looks presidential. She looks presidential. She kind of pushed it aside. It was mitigated against. It It was, it was diminished. The obvious issues this person had were somehow ignored because of what they looked like. It's fascinating that our old Bible has so much to say to our modern world, isn't it? Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that somehow... Uh, um, uh, America is Israel, and all, I'm, I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying, and what I think the Holy Spirit showed me, this is the reading part, 
is that we have much more in common with the people of Israel than we would like to. Our hearts are very much like theirs. We look to people, we look up to people through the same heart that they did. We value things that we shouldn't and we ignore things that we also shouldn't. So who do you look up to? What are the qualities in a person that draw your attention? Who, who are your heroes? Who impresses you? Have you ever wondered what, what, why it is that we're so immediately drawn to the outward appearances of, of people like movie stars and, and celebrities and, and, and political leaders and, and certainly athletes? When you daydream about your life, about how, how better it could be or, or how better it would be if only it, it resembled people like them, impressive on the outside? Who are you modeling your life after? Why is any of this relevant? The purpose of the king of Israel was precisely that. The king of Israel was not meant to be a political or military leader. That was not his first or primary role. He was meant to be the spiritual guardian over the people of God. By looking to the king of Israel, the people would know who God was, learn about God, learn about God's ways, be led by God through the king. This was the influence the king of Israel had to have on the people. This is the only reason he existed. Listen to what Moses said several centuries before the book of 1 Samuel in Deuteronomy 17. This might be up on the screen. Moses said, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, which they're in already, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, which they did, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. There's the military part of it. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the king's purpose is not to build a military or to build the economy of a people. What is his purpose? Verse 18, Deuteronomy chapter 17. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's, and that he may not in turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
The primary role of the kings of Israel was to lead the people of God to God. They were meant to look upon the king and learn how to worship God, learn how to follow God, learn how to fear God, learn how to obey God. Their job description was really simple. Have a Bible, read it every day, learn what it says, do what it says, and teach others what it says. And the irony of it all is that Saul, the anointed and elected leader of the people of God, in the book of 1 Samuel, becomes the chief antagonist to the plan of God. And that's what Israel was looking up to. Is that what we're looking up to? When I was growing up, there was a, there was a song that I don't remember much of it. I only remember the hook. It went, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Y- y'all ever hear that song? Okay. It, it was about a basketball player, Michael Jordan. Best basketball player in the history of the world. If you're a LeBron James fan, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. (laughs) I wanted to be like Mike. Why? He was impressive, wasn't he? He was successful. He was famous. He was rich. He he had all these these outward things that that were appealing to me. How many of us have nobody heroes? Young guys, let me talk to you. Actually, all men, but particularly young guys. Do you have any nobody heroes? Nobody heroes? What's that? You know, heroes that are nobodies. People that are heroes, but they're not Michael Jordans. You know who I'm talking about. That 64-year-old man. Has had the same blue-collar job for decades. He's been married to the same woman for 30-something years. Been faithful to her. He's cherished her. He's honored her. He's served her. He's, he's sacrificed for her. He has sanctified her before the Lord. By his influence, she has grown more into Christ's likeness. Got three or four kids. Raised them up in the ways of the Lord. has a Bible, the guy reads the Bible every day, the guy has learned to do what the Bible says, the guy, the guy teaches others to do what the Bible says. How, how many of those heroes do you have in your life, guys? Ladies, what about you? Whom do you esteem in life? What impresses you about other women, ladies? Is it their productivity, maybe? Is it their, their, their robot-like ability to keep everything around them organized? Maybe it's the, the, the extent of their social media presence. I mean, their Instagram page is just amazing. Or, or, or maybe it's, it's just how everything around them is immaculate. You go into their home, and, and, and it looks like they just finished a shoot, you know, took pictures and stuff. Or perhaps it's, it's their laser-focused attention 
in the pursuit of whatever career she's pursuing. Do you have that nobody hero? You know, that woman who's been married for 35 years, faithful to her husband, served him, sacrificed for him, raised godly children, and and experienced maybe some pain in life, some trial in life. Maybe she's a widow. Her husband passed away. Or, or, Or maybe her husband left her. But, or maybe she wasn't able to bear children. But her life bore constant witness to the joy of the Lord. To knowing God, to experiencing God intimately. Do you want to be like her? Do do we have nobody heroes? How's the the book of 1 Samuel reading you right now? What's it saying? Is it showing you the the, the idols of your heart, the the, the tasty people to your eyes that you want to be like? Is it showing you what you value, what you look up to, what you allow to influence you? Is it telling you that, you know, depending on who you're looking at, that's what you're going to model your life towards? There's so much more. Oh my goodness, there's so much more to say. And I haven't even gotten to David. <laughs> Let me do this as quickly as I possibly can. <laughs> the portrait that the book of First Samuel paints of David is one of a man who is deeply committed to the Lord. He sees everything from God's perspective. He values God's word. He values God's honor. He values God's name. He values God's reputation. He values God's kingdom. He values God's purposes. It's God, 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 God. 1 Samuel 13 describes David's call as the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And there's no better passage in the book of 1 Samuel that encapsulates this better for us than 1 Samuel 17, the famous story of David and Goliath. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to comment on it. But if you know the story, the story begins with the Israelite army and the Philistines, again, in battle. They're standing on the top of two mountains, Israel on one, the Philistines on another, and a valley in between. And every day this big old massive giant comes up and releases taunts. And curses the God of Israel. And on this side, the Israelites, they're shaking in their boots. Oh, look at that big old dude. He's going to kill us. David, this little humble shepherd boy, who's a nobody, not a part of Israel's army, brings food to his brothers who are at the front lines. And, and, and he happens to hear the taunts of the Philistine giant to Israel. And l- listen to his response in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. He says, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is David looking up at? Who is David esteeming? Where are his eyes set on? Listen to how this battle takes place 
word gets back to Saul that David is, is talking this way. And, and to make a long story short, David and Goliath go at it. 1 Samuel 17, verse 41. Read this with me. It says, and, the, and, and Goliath moved, or the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. That means he had really light red skin. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut you off and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand on his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Eric, you can go ahead and come up. In the most defining moment of his young life, David's eyes are set on God. But more than that, David is asking us to join him. Not to face our Goliath, but to look upon our God. He wants us to set our eyes on what he sees. The point of this story is not to display David's courage, David's faith, David's ability to fight. The point of the story is to see God. David is not looking this way. David is looking that way. Later on in the book, Saul has become so jealous of David, so his, 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 his uh, moral corruption is so severe, he tries to assassinate David multiple times. David's already anointed king. He winds up killing 80 priests of God. This guy has lost it. He's become unhinged. David has to pretend that he's crazy. He hides in caves. But I want you to listen to David's heart during these times. During these times of trouble and affliction, David saw the same thing he saw when he looked at Goliath. Psalm 57, as some of the psalms are, are, are psalms that David wrote during these times. So he, he opens his heart to us that we might see what he was looking at, what he was experiencing, what he was encountering during these times. He says, be merciful to me. O oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of distraction pass by. I cry out to the Most High God. 
to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David trips on himself. He's thinking about what avails him, and he's like, I'm going to put that aside and focus on God. There's a larger giant in David's eyes, and it's not the one in front of him. It's the one on top of him. Verse 6, he says, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Now listen to what a man who is hiding from a king in fear of being murdered says. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the eyes of David, the glory of the Lord is so great, so supreme, so majestic. His love is so unending, so rich, so steadfast. His his hand is so strong, so mighty, so ferocious. His faithfulness is so trustworthy, so reliable, so enduring. And his presence is so real that lying next to the very gates of death, he is overwhelmed in worship to the God of life. How is 1 Samuel reading you? Does that sound like you? Do you have eyes like David? Pastor Keith is going to come up and he's going to lead us in prayer. So let me ask you to bow. Let's allow this passage to speak to us. Thank you, Ronald. Lord, we are a people living in the 21st century with names like Samuel and Saul and David in our minds because you preserved their lives and the story of who you are in their midst so that we might be affected. Lord, as we have read through these words this morning, our lives are not so different than theirs. Matter of fact, really, really similar temptations and issues and challenges. So, Father, what we need is divine ability to read a living word and for it to come alive in us. 
Lord, what we need is to not live our lives at such a distance that there's nothing about Samuel, nothing about Saul, nothing about David. Most importantly, Lord, nothing about who you were to them in those moments where they stumbled, where they fell, where they had a crisis of faith, where they looked away from you, where you were greater than their need, where you were greater than their failures. Lord, there's so much in each one of these places that I need in my own life. And so, Lord, what we ask, Lord, as we read through your Bible, as we read through divinely ordained storylines, God, give us grace to see what we need to see. And God, in our busy day, in our noisy day, God, give us quietness to hear what we really need to hear. So, Father, my prayer for us this morning is as we have contemplated divinely preserved revelation, that, Lord, you will lock us away in these moments. Lord, this week even, as we open your word, as we read through an assignment, as we ponder and draw near to what you have said, Lord, our lives would be impacted. We would be affected. And we would have an encounter with you that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, seeking all the way into the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, imparting your grace into our lives. Just through reading the Bible. Wow. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ronald. You guys have an awesome week.